Hey guys, Barry McGuinty here for another episode of the Comeback Game uh, podcast. And today, I'm super excited to uh, welcome aboard Joe Parnay, who's uh, one of the most loved and most masterful life coaches and human behavior experts. Uh, Joe's also the coach's coach and the head trainer at the Coaching Institute, and has trained uh, over 6,000 coaches globally over the last 10 years, and author of an upcoming book, Courage to Be You. Joe, how are you doing today? I'm great, Barry. How are you going? Mate, I'm excellent. I'm, I'm pretty excited for our episode because... Uh, Today, we're going to be doing things a little bit differently. So rather than necessarily drive, diving into uh, your comeback game and the story of the past, we're going to be talking a bit more about your recent body of work uh, in the book, Courage to Be You. Sure, absolutely. Where was I meant to begin? Mate, just for the, the, for the viewers out there and the people listening to this yeah. today, I'd love to share a little bit more about uh, specifically who you are and what you do. Obviously, uh, we've shared a little bit there, but uh, who is Joe Pane? All right. First of all, thanks for having me, Barry. Really appreciate the phone call the other week to invite me on here. It's uh, fantastic. Um, well, uh, so who am I? Well, back in 2004, 2005, um, I experienced what a lot of people experience at some point in life, and that is uh, I kind of got lost. So um, I, I, I have found that in my coaching journey in the last 10, 12 years, and also with uh, what I've been writing about in Courage to Be You, is that it comes a time where people get lost somehow whether they get lost in their relationships, whether they get lost in their careers and start questioning earlier decisions, whether earlier yeah. decisions can be changed or that they're stuck in time or whatever it might be, or people get lost in life overall. And uh, so anyway, I was going through that myself back in uh, 04, 05. It kind of began 2003. And uh, so um, to sound um, cliche, um, I started looking for answers because I did. I started looking for answers. So I started getting into personal development. I was reading about... Um, lots of case studies on near-death experiences. And the reason why I was doing all of that kind of stuff, and near-death experiences sounds like a random thing to say to you, but the reason why I'm saying that is because I was looking for a fresh perspective, a different perspective on life. And uh, all I knew was that, um, that what seemed to used to be interesting to me in my work life um, didn't seem to really spark me up anymore. So I had this illusion that I thought maybe there was something wrong and maybe this is what it means when they say that people fall into depression or fall into some kind of, um, you know, subtle mental illness that then becomes a full-blown crisis. So anyway, uh, what happened was uh, literally one, uh, one night or weekend, whenever it was, I was home and my wife Silvana was home having, uh, having a catch-up with a good friend of hers who um, was all, you know, perky and excited, like a lot more perkier and excited than normal and, Long and the short of it is um, she had been on this uh, wonderful meditation retreat and that um, drew my curiosity and I, I followed up that organization that she went and uh, became a, a student of. Um, I gave them a phone call the next day and um, I offered myself to them for free. <laughs> and it was, it was one of the most strangest and logical things I've ever done in my life. And uh, Anyway, the long and short of that was I ended up being with them for 15 months uh, working as a volunteer and um, I did all of their retreats and all of their, um, all the teachings that they did, I learned them all and I experienced them all and uh, my life changed immensely. The only problem was that I was running out of money because I was working for nothing. So um, I ended up going back to my uh, old job and uh, which was in the real estate space. So I was working for a father-son business, uh, father and son business who were operating this um, real estate sales office that dedicated themselves purely to the mum and dad market, which really appealed to me when I first started there. Um, and anyway, the, long, the, the summary of that was that um, when I went back to work there, because I've been exposed to um, all this wonderful work in um, 
spiritual development, emotional intelligence, personal development, um, it became a passion of mine. And what my work was representing no longer really, it just didn't engage me. Um, and that was really, really, really hard to try to shove yourself into a world that you've grown, um, grown away from. And, uh, and, and that's when literally, I was literally sitting in a park uh, under a tree having lunch, wondering what my next move was going to be. And um, I was reading this magazine called Living Now, and I saw an ad for the Coaching Institute with Sharon Pearson, the founder of the Coaching Institute, who I believe you've had on this show. Um, yeah. And Sharon's uh, ad came up. And uh, I went to an information night and I said yes to everything. And I thought this is the way to get. And what made my decision clearer was I knew that not only was I going to go deeper into the emotional intelligence space, but I was also going to be learning commercial intelligence. I was going to be learning how to run my own business and, uh, and all that. And, um, and that was back in 05. And I went and borrowed 30 grand from the bank um, because that was enough for me to keep going uh, for another five or six months whilst I commenced this journey full time into coaching. And, um, and I just did everything I was told by my mentors, mainly by uh, Sharon, who was my main mentor uh, at that time, and um, applied everything, did everything, you know, using the words of uh, John Maxwell, I failed forward effectively and uh, made lots of mistakes, all the usual things I'm sure that uh, you've heard many times. And um, my coaching practice got off to a successful start in my first year and, um, and it grew from there. And here I am. Yeah with you now in this current stage in this recording, my 13th year and doing this full time. And um, thousands and thousands and thousands of hours later, I've learned a lot about the human condition and the soul and people and love and life and all good things. And, um, and, and life is good. <laughs> yeah. So 13 years later, 6,000 plus uh, coaches, you know, students trained around the world. Pretty impressive. And, you know, what I'd love to understand a bit more or dive into is that it's seemingly there's been a, a transition or progression the last few years. So when we met, it was a lot around, um, you know, neurolinguistic programming, a lot of the human behavior aspect. Uh, but more recently, it seems to be we've kind of taken a bit more of a, a deep dive into, into heart, into soul, into spirit, and understanding how all that kind of is also represented within a state of being as well. So let's, let's have a chat about that. Yeah. Uh, so... Um... What, what I uh, found was, and it became more obvious to me after the birth of my sons. So Silvana is my wife. So Silvana and I, um, our boys are 10. So they were born in 08. And uh, when they started going to school, primary school, four years ago, um, it became obvious to me. It wasn't an obvious thing, but it was obvious to me because of all the work that I've done in coaching and all this space, that there were so many parents that I was meeting um, who I was meeting, who just didn't know how to be with each other, didn't know how to be with other people. So if you can picture this, these are adults who have got their responsibilities, their businesses, their jobs, their mortgages and their kids. And yet when, um, when it came to the releasing their first child, like we did, to school for the first time, most of us experienced vulnerabilities that are very difficult to, to explain in, in accurate language. But it's a, it's a scary feeling, an exciting feeling, but more scary than exciting. And most parents didn't know how to be in a sense of how to communicate, how to talk. Um, it was just really strange. I'd be having, trying to have conversations with, uh, with other parents around the vulnerabilities of them, the fear of all this. And, and, I, and, I, and I got awkwardness. I got um, hiding. I got, um, uh, they just didn't know how to respond. And, and then I thought to myself, gee, am I being a bit over the top? But being over the top, you know, if that's being me, that's not really being over the top. I'm not, I know I'm not an over the top kind of guy. Anyway, um, 
then it became the obvious part was this, Barry, and that is that I realized that most children don't make it through to adulthood with their self-esteem intact. Mm. But most adults are walking around where what you see on the outside is not what you what they what you get on the inside. And most yeah. adults don't know what's on the inside. So um, the journey then became, and that's what inspired me to write uh, Courage to Be You, and that's what inspired also Sharon to develop her book, Ultimate You, um, in that let's make this a journey into the soul. And what that means, and let's, let's make it pragmatic. Let's provide some behavioral frameworks that move away from the restrictions of NLP. NLP is its own science, and, and it's a phenomenal science, and so it should be. It's changed lots of lives. I think it's an amazing um, body of work that those amazing guys put together. Um, the, uh, the, the thing that was restrictive about it was um, when the school, when TCI was teaching NLP, if you wanted to innovate, pioneer, expand, change, flip, add, you weren't allowed to. So, um, so Sharon moved away from NLP, so did I. There's still, still aspects of that in our lives. I mean, NLP, neuro-linguistic program is part of our, our human experience. Yeah. Um, but now what's happened is through Courage to Be You, um, I've developed my own frameworks based on my own learnings through my experiences, inspired by many different heroes. And uh, for what purpose? So these frameworks can help people um, get out of the darkness when they're lost. Mm. So to close the gap, if you like, between what's going on on the outside and, uh, and what's going on on the inside. And, um, and that's been the journey now, the focus for the last few years. And, yeah. um, and and courage to be you itself as an event, and also as a uh, as the, the book is um, just in its uh, final stages of its first manuscript. Um, but the essence of the of the of the message is uh, pretty clear, and that is that um, there comes a time for all of us where we need to move away uh, from the egocentric world of ambition and transist into the heart centered world of meaning. And and then the third part is uh, the integration the recontextualization of ambition into meaning where it doesn't mean we don't become less ambitious. It just means that we become ambitious in different ways. So for example, an ambition driven person who's stuck in the egocentricity of the ambition driven world, it's very much about what do you think of me and what can I get from this? Um, they're the core driving questions. Whereas that transforms into what can I give and who am I in the meaning driven world? And the questions of what can I get and what do you think of me are still present, but they're not the primary driving questions. Mm. Um, this journey is not a journey that you decide to take. It's not a journey that you sit down at your desk and you contemplate and then you decide to take. It is a journey that comes to us. It comes to us. It calls us. Mm. And uh, because it's an illogical journey, it's a journey of the soul. It's a journey of emotion. I remember when I first was going through this myself without having this language, um, I um, remember leaving my job, my old job, as I went into the space, and um, there was a—I was just—it was just luck or coincidence. You and I know there is no such thing, but let's call it that. It was the last day of my job, and uh, there, there was a meeting, and my old employer employed about 34 people, and it was the—it was a quarterly meeting into the quarter just to accolade and acknowledge some contributions in the company, and then they acknowledged the fact that I was leaving, and there was a senior property manager standing right next to me. And in private, kind of, other people could hear the conversation, but in private, she said to me, um, you've got these clients, you've got this establishment, you've got all this stuff going on, you're, you know, all this, this, blah, blah, blah. Why are you leaving? It makes no sense. And as soon as she said all that, 
I was overwhelmed with emotion. I just started to cry and um, it was really awkward. And um, I just said to her, I don't know why I'm, why I'm leaving. I just know that I need to move. Mm. So the point I'm making here, Barry, is that the journey of ambition to meaning, which is the core message of Courage to Be You, is an emotional, upheaval, disruptive, uncertain transition. And none of us can do it alone. We need to have the right people around us. Is it something that you feel we're all called to do? Because it's really interesting. That was a question I had before. Is it like, is it something that's called upon us? Or is it something we go and seek? And we, we, we shared that it's more called upon us. And then there's an aspect of us wanting to seek that. But do you believe that it's something that finds everybody in their, in their journey in life? And if so, is there a specific age period or is it a complete random? Well, so far from my experience and my work, um, there's no consistent pattern of age versus transition. Um, you know, having the privilege and the honor of representing the Coach Institute and all these trainings, uh, there's been people from, from literally the youngest students I've had for TCI, uh, TCI as a coaching student, 18, all the way through to 81. So, I mean, there's no, there's no age there, no age pattern. But it's, um, it's definitely literally a calling. I mean, that's why it's called a calling. It's something that is calling us. Um, I believe, as, as woo-woo as this might sound, it's, it's actually the real us calling the pretend us that we think that we are. So, yeah. in other words, it's almost like our heart calling out to our ego to say, hey, look at this. And if you, if you ignore me, I will create some discomfort for you. And that discomfort will normally come either through a life crisis of some kind or it will come through a, an emotional upheaval, confusion. It's a classic, what we call in coaching, a classic boundary condition. Yeah. We're going through a, a hell of a cloud. And, um, and as we know in nature, the cloud is not part until we move. So with movement yeah. comes clarity. And... Uh, uh it's really interesting, Joe, because this is something that I've, I've noticed a lot within our clients as well, is that there's these people that it's almost like the calling comes and it's a, it starts as a whisper, right? It starts as a sense or a knowing. And, and it becomes so loud that it creates such discomfort that almost completely destroys these people's lives uh, until the point that they, that they meet somebody like, it's almost like the hero's journey, right? They meet somebody that, that reminds them about their heart or reminds them to keep, connect back with who they really are. And at that point, they realize how many areas of life there, there is a lack of integrity or inauthenticity, to yeah. put it in human words. Areas yeah. of life in which is not no longer resonating with who they are anymore. Yes. Yes, exactly. So what happens is, um, to put it in a different language, it's like the things that used to be a priority no longer are a priority anymore. The yeah. things that used to matter no longer matter anymore. The things that used to excite us don't, no longer excite us anymore. So that's the beginning of it um, and the beginning of the transition. And uh, the thing is, if you don't have this language or this framework or this awareness or this support or this help from anyone who knows this kind of stuff, um, it can be really, really confronting because the ego has to make sense of what's going on. Mm. So those ego voices, I mean, it's been stated in ego state therapy that there are up to 15 different voices that exist in the full human being and the fully functioning being. So there's a lot of voices that get a lot of opinions on what's going on. And a lot of these voices, see, the ego is unconsciously addicted to certainty. So it wants to take us back to what we've always known, even yeah. though what we've always known is not really um, nothing that's necessarily good for us. Yeah. Um, so uh, this, is where, this is where why the book's called Courage to Be You, because mm -hmm. Courage to Be You means catching up with who you've become, which takes a lot of courage, the embracing of uncertainty, the embracing of ambiguity, the embracing of not knowing where the next step's coming from, and we'll have to go through that at some stage. 
um, not necessarily in this lifetime, but it's coming. And yeah. um, and then, you know, deep in the meaning-driven world, as we get to the very ends of that, you know, because um, one of the one of the things that inspired me to write this book is the work of Carl Jung. And Jung says that there are four stages to life. And um, those four stages are what I see as identity stages. So in the ambition-driven world, we all begin with the archetypical label of athlete. Uh, not, that doesn't mean we're literally an athlete. It means we're our identity and who or what we think we are is completely associated with our body, with what we wear, with our material things, our car, our house, our jobs. It's, it's very much physically based. And the, and the core driving question that drives this person's existence is, is what do you think of me? And, and if that becomes a core driving question, that person is guaranteed to have low self-esteem because they've outsourced their power to the environment. And anytime you get someone who says, you don't look good, you take that to heart because you think that that's your identity. And then what happens in life is we go through an evolution and we evolve to the next level of the next stage of development that Jung talks about. And that's the archetype of warrior, warrior like hunter, where a core driving question now becomes in life, our mission life changes. It evolves from what do you think of me? It evolves into what can I get? Now that sounds negative, but it's not that negative. It's get the skill, get the guy, get the boy, get the, the lifestyle, get the results, get the money. It's establishing ourselves. Mm. And, um, and in that establishment, the focus still is heavily on ourselves. Um, so that's the ambition-driven world. It's a combination of athlete archetype with wire archetype, driven by the core driving question, what can I get with the secondary sensitive question of, and at the same time, as I'm getting, what do you think of me? So the, uh, this is a very strong statement what I'm going to say next. Um, but I'm, I'm deeply certain that this is accurate, is that all anxiety, all mental illness, all depression live in the ambition-driven world because it, all the power has been outsourced to the outside. Now, to be clear, there are many, 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 many roads to depression and anxiety. There's not one road. This is one way of explaining it. And, uh, and then what happens is one day, the calling that we just spoke about or the, the, uh, the, the emotional disruption, the emotional upheaval, the crisis, something happens, that shifts our perspective and we start questioning earlier choices. We start questioning earlier decisions. We had been living up until that moment under the illusion that those decisions could not be changed. But then we start to realize, hold on, we can change the decisions. Who cares if up to the age of 35 we, were, we did this? Why can't we change it? Why can't we do something different with our lives? Why can't we shift direction? And so we need to then traverse this revolving door. It's, and it's not a door, it's a revolving door that we walk through trying to wonder like, my God, what's going on here? And sometimes we're lucky enough to be spat out the side of the meaning-driven world. When we get into the meaning-driven world, it's a whole new game. And that's where we become, at the, we become the entity of the third stage of, uh, of Jung's work. And that's the archetype of statesman, where a core driving question becomes, what can I give? Yeah. And within that, what can I give is still, what can I get and what do others think of me? But the core driving question, what can I give? So you start to realize that your purpose was never going to be found in doing stuff for yourself and establishing yeah. your career. It was going to be found always in service to others. And that's when life changes. Now, it's a revolving door, Barry. So what that means is that most of us, when we land in this, first, in this space for the first time, it is utterly confusing. It is exciting, but we don't know what to get excited about. We just know that it's something different. The revolving door, sometimes called money, will revolve us back because we need to still earn money or we've still got responsibilities of this relationship or of this family or of this business or of this career or of this management position or whatever it might be. So we evolve all the way back 
And then, but we're there and we're going, shit, man, I, I, I know better than this. Like, what can I do to get out of this? So the, the, the door just keeps spinning and we keep going out and come back, going out. And eventually we land. How do we land? With the appropriate help. It's when the person realizes I can't do this alone. I need help. I need a tribe. I need a new community. I need new relationships. I need a new mentor. I need to do a new program, something. And then they land over here. And then the mission becomes, how do I now integrate this world into this world? Because I still need to make money to live, but now the money needs to be earned in a meaningful way that is aligned deeply to the values um, where it's done in service to others. So to give you an example, in my coaching business or my work, so I, I, I earn money in a meaningful way in the, in the work that I do with people and all the rest of it, meaningful to me anyway. I'll say that, I'll say my career, meaningful to me. And um, so I, the warrior in me is not a strong thing, but the warrior in me is still very, I'm in touch with it because I know I've got financial responsibilities because I've got two kids, I've got a family, I've got all that. That's my nest. I, who else is going to look after them if I don't? So, but the money is made in the way where I give add value, get rewarded. Whereas over here, the money was made regardless whether I had a value or not. And the athlete archetype is still integrated into this because the athlete archetype becomes my body. Not that I, and I know that I'm not my body, but I know I've got to look after the body, nutritionalize the body, run the body, look after it, manage it, et cetera. Love it. Mm. And, then, and then that gets integrated into here. And, and, and you and I, and so many others who are in this space here, have still got another stage to go before we exit. Because the fourth stage is a stage I, I, don't, um, I know little about. And that final stage of this whole Courage to Be You journey is the fourth stage of identity, which uh, Jung speaks about as the archetype of spirit. And the core driving question there is, who am I? What am I? And Jung says that this stage is the preparation for death, which is a death of the ego. Because the next doorway, the next revolving door from there is actually not a revolving door. It's a door that opens. And once you walk through it, it closes. It's called physical death. And we're moving to the non-physical. There's a bit in the book about that, which has got a warning on it because some readers might not, uh, <laughs> I don't know, it's a bit weird. But um, I've gone into that because the, the ultimate identity is where all of these identities disintegrate. And yeah. you realize that you were never the athlete. You were never the warrior. You were never the, um, the meaning-driven, mission-based person. In yeah. fact, you get to realize one day that you're not even the soul. And I don't even know what that means, Barry. So yeah. um, it moves on from there. But that's a summary of what my work is at the moment. It's, uh, it's really interesting. I, I got this uh, message before. Uh, let me just find it because it's really interesting, um, which, which, which touches on that. Uh, yeah, so we're, we're Stardust riding on a ball of, at, at an unmanageable speed, somehow maintaining balance, right? Like when you look at existence as, as far bigger than what can I get, you start, start, to, start to realize what it's all about. Yeah. And there was something I, I listened to uh, recently called The Keys to the Kingdom by Alison A. Armstrong. And it's this, this, this body of women that over the last 500 years have studied the development patterns of men. And they categorize them into kind of six categories. So you go from page uh, through to knight, through to prince. The prince is like early, middle, late prince. And then you go through into king and from king to elder. And it was interesting as you were sharing that, I was noticing a lot of similarities okay. between what she speaks about and this stage here in terms of the, the journey of the ego, because Prince is all around like building the kingdom. Yeah. And often where men have a lot of relationship breakdowns is that they're, they're so busy building, 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 doing it for their family, but there's a disconnect between what they're doing and, and the conversations that are being had 
to where yeah. they can transition to the king is what we you kind of shared about being on the other side of the, the, the revolving door. Yes. The king is a lot more around like how can I how can I be in service of others? Yes. Yes. Nice. Love it. So so how does one then like we talk about the fact that in many ways, a lot of us are driven by certainty or an element of certainty, uh, whereas through this journey, the, the certainty is kind of stripped away with us. So uh, I know the answer for me, but I'd be curious to understand for you, like where does one find certainty in this, in this, this journey of evolution? It's by building your inner world. So um, uh, Sharon Pearson in her book, Ultimate You, has what's called the vital needs model. And funny that we're talking about that just for a moment because I'm running a, a webinar on this tonight and the, and it's going to be all about the importance of building the inner world because so many people have issues with trust and have issues with um, long-term thinking and adult responsibilities and all these sorts of things because they put all their power into the outer world, into others, into um, markets, into the boss, into the job, into the career, into things, into the environment, into the family. Like it's outsourced. So in the ambition-driven world, a lot of the experience that the person exists here is uh, where their outer world is much stronger than their inner world. So the way, and that's, and it's, this has really been controlism and, and certainty. Whereas when we go to, to, in order to learn how to embrace uncertainty and ambiguity, it's, we still need to have been in touch with certainty, of course, as you know, but we need to build our inner world. And our inner world, the way we build that, it begins with a sense of gratitude and appreciation for everything that we have. And, and that's becoming aware even for the breath that we have because there's something, there's always something, in fact, many things that we can be grateful for. And that gratitude attitude, I don't want to sound cliche, but that gratitude attitude, I just realized that rhymed. I didn't mean to sound so <laughs> But the, that, that gratitude energy, um, the irony is that that contributes to external stability. Yeah. So what happens is the more grateful we are, the more stable we feel. I'll give you a real life example. If anyone can relate to this, I'm not sure. Um, as you may know, I'm a runner. So I do lots of half marathons and marathons. And um, last year, um, so, so um, last year I did my sixth marathon. So 42.2 Ks, just in case your listeners aren't clear how long the marathon is there, Barry. <laughs> it's, the, it's the warrior ego in me wanting to say that. Um, and uh, the, uh, it's a long race and it's overwhelming at the start line in terms of what you're about to go and do. And yeah. my first five races were running fear, in fear of not making it, fear of injury, fear of pain, whatever the fear was. It was driven, it was, it, it, there weren't pleasant experiences at all. Last year, to answer your question, was the first time I was immersed completely in the attitude of, uh, and in the energy of gratitude and appreciation. Because I used to disrespect the thought, which was when people would say to me, oh, you should be pleased that you've made it to the start line without being injured. You should be deep respect for you because you've made it to the start line and you're all ready to go. And I remember thinking, what's the point to that? The point is that I'm here to run it. So, you know, to, look, to make it is to, to actually make it to the start line and run. Last year, when I was at the start line, I understood what that meant. And I was absolutely, completely appreciative, deeply joyful, intensely grateful for being at the start line with the ability to be able to do this race. And it was the best event I ever ran. It was the first marathon where I ran consistently all the way without stopping. I smashed my PB by eight and a half, nine minutes or something like that. Absolutely thrilled because I, you know, there was love instead of fear in that journey. So how do we build that certainty? It begins with gratitude. So when I bought that gratitude to the start line, 
it settled me down. Mm. It actually brought stability in my mindset. It brought stability in my energy. It brought stability in my perspective of what I was about to do. It calmed me the, down. Mm. <laughs> so therefore, as a result of that, I ran a great race because physically all good. It's this mm. here that has an effect, as you know. Mm. So, um, and um, genuine, deep felt gratitude, joy, and appreciation is how we build our certainty that comes from the inside. And when the certainty or the stability on the inside starts to expand, guess what? We don't have to worry about trusting anything outside of us. We then move to a different distinction on trust. We start to say to ourselves, I can trust whatever comes because my inner world is solid. So that's how you build certainty or stability in a sustainable fashion you can have for the rest of your life, rather than looking for it on the outside all the time like we are in the ambition-driven world. So if gratitude and appreciation creates a certain sustainability. Is gratitude something that we like intend to have and it comes up? Or do you feel that it's something we train? Because I remember many years ago, I was like, I remember saying to myself, like, I should be more grateful than what I am. And, and if I look at my own journey, personally, I can't really decide between the two because there's definitely been elements of practicing gratitude from a reticulating, activating system, you know, like, like literally every day writing things that I'm grateful for and in, in many ways, programming myself to then see more gratitude or, or be able to appreciate things more. But I also think for me personally too, like I've been doing spiritual practices for maybe 11, 12 years now, and I meditate very, very regularly uh, every single day. And I've also found through my practice itself, there's been a shift that's happened internally. I, I must feel in some ways separate to the more external writing down of, of things to be grateful for. Yeah, yeah. Um... I remember in 2009, I went to uh, uh, Date with Destiny with Tony Robbins. And uh, one of the things that I took away from that was um, the importance of deciding to have gratitude and appreciation as number one value. And um, so the concept is one thing. Then the other thing was for me was I immediately started focusing on uh, what I was grateful for in terms of my marriage, in terms of my health, in terms of my um, decisions relationships, what's led me to the coaching student, my relationship here, um, the students, all the different people I've met. Um, and then I, I started going more micro on the gratitude, being grateful for every breath, being grateful for being pain-free, pain free, being grateful to live, in my case, the best city in the world, Melbourne, Australia, and um, uh, having, having the appreciation of all of that. And um, uh, the way that that sparked in me was to experience through my coaching, as in my work with different people, the incredible misfortune, abuse, dark worlds, all kinds of awful things. I mean, I can't, I can't, the amount of awful things that I've seen, um, not directly in my life, because I haven't, I've been very fortunate, but through the lives of others in what they, what I've coached them through or mentored them through or intervened them through or trained them through has been incredible. And that um, reminded me of a lot of things that I took for granted in my life that reminded me of like, well, take, you know, you, you take for granted that what is normal in your life, in some people's lives, is their mission. Like to have a functional marriage is normal in my life. And when you're used to something for a while, you tend to just go with the guy. Yeah, that's just how my life is. But other people um, who are less fortunate, that's their dream. So the way that I've engaged with the genuine feeling of gratitude and appreciation to build that inner world to gain even more stability um, and certainty within myself has come from um, 
choosing wisely who to compare my life to because we, you and I can easily compare our life to say, you know, Hugh Jackman, Hugh Jackman, who's um, not as good looking as you and I, Barry, that's his only downfall. Um, but the man is, the man is a good man. He's a statesman. He's a good representation of the country. He's a, he's a, he seems like he's got his stuff together. He is a multi-millionaire. He, do, he does what he's, he does what he loves and he's amazing talent. It's easy for you and I, well, I'll speak for myself. You know, I can look at him and start downgrading myself and feeling a bit ordinary about, um, oh, why can't I have his life that is like, you know, going around the world everywhere and all the rest of it. And, um, or, you know, comparing myself to, um, you know, uh, here in Melbourne, AFL is big. So comparing myself to a, an elite footballer and his life and what that means and the rock star lifestyle. Instead of comparing myself to that, I compare myself to where I've been. Because let me explain this, Barry. In the ambition-driven world, people are guilty of comparing themselves to others. Yeah. When you're in the meaning-driven world, you're comparing yourself to where you have come from. You're comparing you to you. And that sense of progress and that sense of um, the beautiful um, momentum of that, um, and, you know, and while you're doing that, how do you express that? How do you feel that gratitude and appreciation? By then using or integrating the ambition, where you get to integrate the ambition-driven world into the meaning-driven world in this conversation is where you use the ambition-driven world thinking of comparing yourself to people who are significantly less fortunate. And then you go, okay, how far have I come in my life in comparison to that? And, and you start to feel really fortunate. Mm. And um, so that's how that's been built. And, and my recommendation is that uh, I'm in, t- in complete agreement with um, what Tony Robbins said at that training, and that is that gratitude and appreciation should be number one because that should be where all other values file into, into the context, into the perspective of gratitude and appreciation. So to go back to your question from a few minutes ago, um, without gratitude, you can't build long-term stability. You need it. It's a prerequisite. Um, I've thought about this. I've gone through this thinking around this in many different ways. I've taken gratitude away from from uh, my mindset just to see what it feels like in terms of everything. And it's shit. Yeah. It's really shit. So um, that's a really, really important point is that that is a prerequisite to all stability in the man-driven world. Whereas in the ambition-driven world, people are looking for it on the outside. They're looking for it in the form of guarantees, insurances. Whilst we've got to have our responsibilities, um, our financial responsibilities, we've got those responsibilities. What I'm talking about is where people are relying on others to give them the certainty that they're not going to be hurt or whatever. It's like my wife, it's like me saying to my wife and my wife saying to me, I promise you, you know, I guarantee you that I'm never going to leave you. No one can promise that. Yeah. We've been married for 22 years, Barry. We still can't say to each other, I promise you, I guarantee you that I'll be with you for the rest of my life. That's our intention right now. That's our love right now. But gee, life can change in a heartbeat. Yeah. Often people give guarantees that they cannot deliver on. So I I love the model and how, uh, you know, the unresourceful behaviors of, you know, the earlier stages around comparison to others can be used in a resourceful way as well when, when compared to self. And I see that a lot with people is that, you know, where that lack of gratitude or appreciation, the frustration, the anxiety, the challenges come up is when they are comparing themselves. It's like that whole saying, don't compare your first chapter to someone else's fifth chapter. Yeah. You, know, you have no idea what somebody else has been through in their life to be where they are. And, you know, checking somebody out on social media doesn't give you an accurate representation of what they're really going through. What are you saying you know, is that? What was that? Sorry. 
all you're seeing is their outside world. Yeah, their, their projection, their chosen projection of the outside world, which is often very different to the inner representation. And we talk about gratitude as well. It's like how often, um, I'm sure you've possibly had experience in your life, I know that I have, it's like, I'll be happy when. You know, long, long time ago, but it's like, I'll be happy when I'm making that money or have that girl or buy that car or get that job, or whatever the case may be. Yet the reality is that happiness, like, is a blink of a moment before yeah. we're onto the next thing. There's, there's, there's never that stop to really appreciate and be grateful for what we've achieved. It's unsustainable. So happiness is unsustainable. See, the, the goal of the ambition-driven world is the, what's sold to the ambition-driven world uh, thinker is, is exactly that, is happiness. Yeah. And to get to that, you need to buy something or have something or get something. Um, the meaning-driven world is much more sustainable than the ambition-driven world because the meaning-driven world or the meaning-driven existence understands that life is not about happiness. Life is about fulfillment. And when you're fulfilled, you can sustain that for the rest of your life. Whereas happiness, like every other emotion, comes and goes. Fulfillment is not an emotion. It's a state of being. And that you can remain with for the rest of your life if you choose to. Yeah. Because what, what, we, what, we, what we know is that it's not, it's not the money or the relationship somebody wants. It's the feeling of having that in their life or, or the meaning that they, that they place on having that experience in their life. Yes, exactly. exactly yeah. right. Mate, I, I love how this fits into so many other behavioral models that you guys have, have taught me over the years and that I've kind of sought out for myself as well. I suppose, uh, you know, for the people out there that are watching or listening to this, it might be like, oh, it's okay for you guys. You know, you've, you've, you've done the work. Uh, but it's different for me. Like, what would you say to someone out there right now that's maybe struggling or, or got some challenges in their business or in their life uh, that are listening to this, they're obviously drawn to the conversation. Like, what would be some steps that you'd give them or some next uh, movements to kind of make? Well, the most important thing is to remember that you're not in this alone. And so many people who step out to, to their calling or to start their own business or whatever it is, they do it alone. And um, you need to be surrounded by the right people. You've got to be part of a community, part of a tribe or a group of people that, that will support you. That, that, that when you're with these people, they don't um, question you in a negative way. They don't, they don't ask you, why are you doing that? It's more like the, the default response is, how can I help you or how can I support you? Or, gee, that really, that's really hard. Let me just hang out with you for a while or whatever it might be. That's what you need. Um, you know, the cliche, no man is an island, is, is a cliche because it's bloody true. So uh, you, you can't do it alone. You, if you try to do it alone because your ego is that strong, then uh, good luck with that because it's not going to be sustained. You know, one of the things I've learned, um, one of the many things I've learned a lot, like consistently in the last 12 years, is that um, I will only invest energy, time and money in things that are sustainable. Um, and uh, when it comes to, um, you know, going back to the very beginnings, you, you've got to do it, you know, in a way, but whatever that transition is for you, whether it's a relationship transition, whether it's a, geographical transition, whether it's a career transition, an emotional, whatever it is, is that you need to go and find people who are going through a similar thing, not to go and whine and, 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 and what it was me, but to, to, get, to connect with the wisdom, the collective wisdom of that tribe. Um, I can't speak highly enough of that, Barry, because uh, I've seen people try to go out there alone and um, it doesn't bloody work. It's like, you know, if we, if we look at this from a, from a physical physics law kind of thing, you know, you look at the Tour de France. I'm not a, an avid cyclist fan, but we all know that Tour de France is, a, is the biggest cycling bicycle race in the world. And how many times do we see where there's a lone cyclist out in the front, in front by two or three or four or five kilometres, not just by 100 metres, like kilometres ahead, and then what they call the peloton, which is the massive group of cyclists who work together, who are in it together, 
they they effortlessly just catch up to this lone cyclist and then just gobble him up and, and he just disappears. Um, look at nature, the way birds fly in, in the sky. I mean, there's, there's, there's all, what do we call them? We call them flocks. Why? Because there's power in numbers. There is depth in numbers. There is, so you find the right tribe, you'll be fine. As long as you're a long-term thinker, that's another piece of advice to your question, is that uh, too many people when they start off, they're short-term thinkers. They think like children. So they're re re responding to short-term things, meaning when I'm, I'm, making, I'm changing my mind because of all these things that are in front of me right now. Whereas we know that for uh, long-term thinkers, long-term thinkers know that there's a, a, a realm of discomfort that we need to go through. We need to put off the immediate need for uh, feeling um, good about things. You know, Sharon says it so well in her book, um, in Ultimate You, Sharon Pearson, she says, make decisions which your future self will love you for, that your future self will endear you for, that your future self will be relieved for. You know, so many things that my wife and I, Savannah and I have done in our lives, especially in the last 10 years, Barry, have been about long-term thinking strategies, whether it's our investments, whether it's our strategy in terms of what our lifestyle, whether it's, um, you know, a money thing, whatever it is, it's all long-term. So we can walk into the next, as we sail into our next decade, because, you know, we're both 48, we're approaching 50 quick. You know, if we sail into the next decade, um, feeling good about the decisions we made when we were 40. So um, two things to your question. One, be surrounded by the right people, have a great tribe, a great community, a great conglomerate of high-class people. And high-class only means same values as you. And, um, and, and, and in that be inspired to think like an adult, which means you think long-term and you want to replace all of your safe problems with risky problems. So risky problems are the problems and challenges that grow us. Safe problems are the problems that hold us back. Safe problems goes with a short-term thinker. An example of a safe problem with a short-term thinker is they procrastinate and sabotage their life away. I mean, how many times do we hear the word procrastination, self-sabotage? It's, it's rampant in our, in, our, in our community. It's a it's rampant part of the human condition. Whereas a long-term thinker replaces those safe problems of procrastination sabotage with problems that expand them and grow them. And they have a psychology that's not about getting out of the comfort zone. It's a psychology that's based on continually, sustainably expanding their comfort zone. So long-term thinking, surrounded by the right people, and obviously take action, um, are, the, are the hallmarks of anyone who is at the beginning of whatever calling they have discover within themselves yeah i absolutely love that and uh, i want to leave the guys out there with a quote from you actually which is the only thing left over from the past is growth if you choose to see it which i think is just absolutely mm -hmm. magn magnificent thank you thanks Mary. Yeah. joe Pane, mate thank you so much for your time for the people out there watching listening that are wanting to uh, engage with you when's your book available uh it should be out in the first quarter of 2019 so yeah around march time fantastic and how can they connect with you uh, well, I've got a fan page on Facebook. So um, I think it's just simply Joe Pane, P-A-N-E, uh, at fan page or fan, something like that, Barry, fan page. Yeah. Or they can Google me and find me on Facebook, on Instagram, all those basic uh, websites. Uh, next year when the book comes out, there'll be obviously a courage to be you, um, .com au, which I've already got ready to go when the book gets released. So um, that'll be another avenue of, of connection. Beautiful. Well, uh, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate all you've had to share. I'm sure the guys out there have got a massive amount of value. Uh, if this has resonated with you, we'd love if you share it to your friends, family, anyone you think needs to hear it, uh, like it, comment, and let us know your thoughts. Uh, once again, Barry Mugadidi from the Comeback Game podcast. Uh, Joe Parnay, it's been an absolute pleasure.
Thanks so much, Barry. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Deeply appreciate it. Thank you so much.